Hi, it's Alex. Thanks for downloading this episode of The Life Pedagogic from CFUI's Youth and Education podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory, open discussions will invite you into the speaker's worlds and encourage challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. The London Borough of Hackney, home to 500,000 people, including myself and the offices of the Centre for Education and Youth. It's also home to some of the highest performing schools in the country and one of the largest numbers of children growing up in poverty in the UK. Amid this landscape of contrasts, several local community leaders have spent decades fighting to make Hackney a safe and supportive place for young people to grow up. Along the way, they've pioneered approaches and set a standard that inner city areas across Europe still seek to emulate. One of those community leaders is local legend Alison Creel. Born in apartheid South Africa, she trained as a teacher in London before a rapid rise to headship, where she established and transformed primary schools in Hackney through her innovative emphasis on well-being and community empowerment. She famously transformed Northwold School from being in the bottom 1% of primary schools nationally to being in the top 0.1% in a few years of headship. Today, she continues to act as a voice and thought leader across the education sector, while also running above and beyond an online platform for schools to constructively share best practice and inspire each other. Alison Creel, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) Alison, you actually left teaching and school leadership relatively recently to set up and run your own digital organisation. Can you tell us a bit more about Above and Beyond and how it's being used to support teachers in schools? So I did indeed leave Headship. I became very uh, concerned um, about the way in which we've become very separate and polarised in education. But actually, when you have conversations with people, you realise we're not polarised. We all actually go into school because we want to serve our community and we want very Mm. best for children. Um, But because we're so polarised, it means that that overtakes the space that we have for connection and celebration and collaboration and being able to ask for help and all of those sorts of things. So the Above and Beyond platform is literally a a one-stop shop. Um, It looks a bit like Facebook and Twitter and all those sorts of things, (laughs) but the difference is that people have to come as themselves. They need to be proud of who they are, they need to say their real name, they need to say what their role is, they need to be able to say, um, uh, they need to show their real pictures and all of those sorts of things because I think that then you have a different kind of professional accountability and it is exclusively just for educators. Um, and I want, and it is a space where literally we start sharing what we're doing extremely well because 80% of what goes on in school every day is brilliant. But sometimes what we hear about is the 20%, which isn't so great, which is a real shame. Um, So, yeah, it's like this huge dating app where we can say, hey, look at me. This is what I'm really, really great (laughs) at. And I want to share it with you. And remember, when you're doing something really good and you can prove you've got the evidence to say it's really good, then it's not showing off. It's actually saying I'm doing something really great and I want to tell you about it so that if it kind of um, inspires you, then I'm willing to share it with you open-heartedly so that together, instead of us having one school which is better than another, we come together so that every school can be a great school 
um, because I think that every teacher has a right to teach in a great school and every child has a right to go and be part of a great community. Um, so it's, it's all good. And I kind of want to see myself as the person who champions all teachers, irrespective of their methodology and their ethos and their values. Fascinating and inspiring, Alison. I want us to go from the present now into the past. I want us to take a deep dive into the annals of your memory. <laughs> What's your very first memory of being in a school, Alison? So I went to, in, uh, I was born in South Africa, as you um, stated before, and um, I, uh, which meant I went to a Cape Colored school. But um, at that, and still um, in South Africa today, children don't start school until the January after their sixth birthday. Um, but my parents, I think they noticed that maybe um, they, I was kind of seen as a bright kid. And so they, they persuaded the head teacher to take me on a year early. And I was also very small. Um, so I remember going to the school and it would have been a Cape Colored school. Um, it, and my memory of it was it being very scary. It was violent. Um, and I just felt very small and unheard. Um, and I also remember getting the pain in my first week there. Wow. Hmm. Caning was the norm. Hmm. It was part of the way in which you controlled. Um, but it, the, the, the system, um, was also that you had to do these exams twice a year, English, maths and Afrikaans. Um, and if you failed, you had to redo the whole academic year. So the class that I went into would have been, I would have been the youngest, and then there would have been children who were um, probably a year older than me, um, and then there would have been other children who might have been five or six years older than me. Um, and when you failed one of those exams and you had to repeat the whole academic year, then it was not just shameful for you. It was shameful for your whole, whole family. Mm. So it was a very negative environment. And Alison, growing up in apartheid South Africa, especially as a person of colour, how did that particular set of social circumstances shape your, your childhood, your early schooling and educational experiences? Uh, so I, I had extremely young parents who were quite activists, especially, especially my dad. Uh, so the um, old ANC, the ANC that was led by Madiba and Nelson Mandela um, and Biko and people like that, they were, they were people that I knew about from the very beginning of my life. Um, and, of course, they were um, an illegal organisation at that time because they were calling for the downfall of apartheid and they were, talking, they were calling for equity um, and they were asking mm. for um, everyone to readdress the balance. Um, so for me, I don't ever remember... I, I remember the fact that I was a second-class citizen because apartheid meant that you had the whites who were, or the Europeans, as they were called. They weren't called whites. Europeans were considered to be the superior class, and they certainly had the best of everything, the best jobs and um, the best park benches. They were the ones who had hmm. buses. The buses would come along 
and they would say if they were black, they were whites or they were black or they were coloreds. But because we were coloreds, sometimes white buses meant that the whites could sit downstairs and the coloreds could sit upstairs. Um, so we always had this kind of hierarchy. Um, but I was taught from the youngest age that you don't allow other people to define who you are. Um, and so I was taught from the really the youngest age to have this knee-jerk reaction um, to the system um, and to not mm. see myself as, as second class. Um, and obviously that meant that um, there was a head-on clash between uh, mm. my family and uh, the police who upheld apartheid. Um, so, for example... Uh, I do remember us, um, one of the things you, you would have had to do was to get permission for people to, who were not the same colour as you to, um, you had to get a special licence with them to come to your house. Um, and um, as far as my dad was concerned, it was his home. He could have whoever he wanted there. If he wanted white people or if he wanted so-called Africans who were the dark-skinned people mm. to come to the house, they were going to come, he wasn't going to go to the police to ask for permission for them to come to his house. And then, of course, that meant um, that the police would come and raise and raid and humiliate. And I saw huge amounts of violence. Um, so that was my upbringing. It was hugely stressful. And I probably saw way more violence than any small child should see. Um, but my eyes were open to inequity from the very beginning. Hmm, really powerful, Alison. And your family then moved between a few mm -hmm. countries. Uh, what brought that about and what was that like as a child and how did it affect your education? Uh, so I suppose the uh, thing to know uh, about me that's uh, quite significant is um, I, I chose to be, I was an uh, elective mute until I was about six or seven. Um, and then I continued wow to be an extremely introverted child. Um, so I was very, very quiet um, and a loner. And, uh, and, and some of that would have, obviously that was related to the, the trauma of living in those circumstances. Um, plus the fact that I, was, um, I wasn't a, a planned child. Uh, my parents were very young when they had me. And it was a Christian household, so there was an awful lot of shame about the fact that I was a child who was conceived outside of marriage. Um, and so I was very much seen as a devil's child, uh, which is a whole different story. And so I had this, this thing about shaming. Um, and so moving from country to country in that kind of way is, a, is, is really, really hard when you are that white, you're that introverted and all those sorts of things. So I, my memories of moving around in school and all of those sorts of things was being very much on the outside because I didn't know how to access the friendships group, friendship groups and to just make friends easily and do all of those sorts of things. And I expect that's why I do so much work around belonging. Um, my, uh, my decision to not talk to grown-ups um, was seen as defiance by my teachers and I was certainly mm. punished. Um, I was caned for, you know, not taking part in spellings and not talking to the teacher and all of that sort of thing. 
So no one really wanted to do that was, yeah, it was just kind of seen as defiance rather than uh, maybe there was something to uh, investigate and to try and support me through. Um, so, yeah, sort of moving from country to country was quite challenging. But the good thing was it meant that I went to a Cape Coloured school, which was extremely underfunded. It was basic basic systems mm-hmm. um we was we sat in rows um where your you were you, the, the your position where you sat in class was based on how well you did in those exams um and because mm, i did wow. quite well i was put at the very front of the class um and then the children who needed the help the most were at the back of the class and we're talking about classes of 50 or 60 children um then when we moved to different countries, sometimes I was in local schools where I didn't speak the language, but I learned to speak the language. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, so for example, I, well, I was brought up to be bilingual from the very beginning. So Afrikaans was my first language and then English was my second language. And then the first country we moved to was Botswana. So I, I learned to speak Sichuana um, and all of those sorts of things. Um, but I... Um, also then went to an international school, which meant that I learned alongside white people for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and wow. then when I was uh, 11, we moved to the north of Ireland, would you believe? And there I went <laughs> to a COV primary school. And then I went to a COV girls grammar school. Um, so, uh, again, it opened my eyes to different types of education mm. systems. And then when I was um, uh, 15, nearly 16, we moved to England um, and I went to a comp school, which was really rough. <laughs> my God, it was rough. Um, and you can imagine going from this very, very sort of elite, strict, uh, zero tolerance a girls' school <laughs> in Ireland to a very sort of cheeky, laid-back, Grange Hill type of institution. <laughs> and then from there I went to uh, a sixth-form, very laid-back school where kids were um, in jeans and you were allowed to smoke in the common room and you called the teachers by their first <laughs> names. So I kind of feel like the best thing that I got out of all of that chopping around was the fact that I really got a taste of most time, most types mm. of um, education setups. Fascinating, Alison. No doubt that eventually uh, influenced your approach towards being a school leader and your vision for what a great school looks like. But perhaps hearing about your experience at school, some might be think that you'd want to get as far away from them as possible. What made you want to pursue teaching as a career? So the recurrent theme that I had um, through all of those schools was uh, that I never felt like I had a teacher who believed in me, who saw me for who I was. And of course, I was a quiet girl um, and I was a good girl. Um, so because I wasn't presenting any um, challenges and I passed my exams and stuff, um, I don't think that there was a huge amount of uh, raise expectations. Nobody really saw my true potential. 
because I wasn't drawing attention mm. to myself. Um, mm. And so when I went into teaching, I wanted to be the teacher that I never had. And I wanted to be the teacher who saw the invisible teacher, the, the invisible children. So I wanted to be there mm. for the good, quiet girls and for the introverted kids um, so that they had their place in the classroom um, because uh, I had worked out that uh, it was the gregarious, uh, noisy boys who gained attention <laughs> over and above mm. the, the, the good kids who really wanted to be successful uh, but weren't creating trouble. So I wanted to um, address that and be present for those children, the invisible children. And your, the first school you uh, decided to teach in was in Hackney, uh, borough of London, where you've spent much of your career. Now, I live in Hackney, Centre for Education and Youth are based there. So we know that the Hackney of those years was very different to how it is now. Mm. Um, what was Hackney like back then? And what, what, what motivated you to want to teach in that, uh, in that borough? Uh, so uh, after I did my teacher training, um, I wanted to teach in Hackney. I loved the diversity. And at that point, I was beginning to find my voice. I became more militant as I did my degree. Um, and I became, um, I became very um, aware of the desire for, the need for equity. I understood the difference between equality and equity. I was ambitious for the children. I knew what it was like to be the child of a migrant. Uh, my parents were very ambitious for me and I was, and I continue to be very conscious of the fact that uh, there's saviorism in education. We have that today where people think that they are the ones who can save children, children of colour um, mm -hmm. from, um, from the ghetto. But the truth is that the people who migrate to this country are the ones who are the most ambitious for themselves and for their children. They want the very best. They come incredibly skilled. And my parents were very, very ambitious for me. They drove me. Um, uh, probably uh, were, they were overly ambitious and quite pushy, but why not? That, you know, that was their purpose. They wanted me to have a better life than they did. Um, and so want, I wanted to work with children who weren't dissimilar to me. They didn't all come from the same country, but I knew that their parents were here because they were ambitious. And that obviously goes against the current trend where we're looking at um, the fact that migrants are illegal and they take us and they don't put anything into society. And I have a very different experience of that. So I wanted to... Uh, work in Hackney with children who were, I wanted to work with the white working class children because I could see that they were very overlooked and um, I knew that they had incredible potential. I'd already worked that out through my teacher training and I also wanted to work with new migrants because I knew their parents were incredibly ambitious for them and because their parents were ambitious for them, I could see the potential for success and that was incredibly exciting for me. So I can remember when we were uh, applying for uh, jobs within education. At that point, the IILEA um, were the uh, local authority um, 
And I have to say that the work that the ILEA was, uh, that, that they were doing was well ahead of the curve. They were further ahead in their thinking and in their ambition for children than we are now. We've actually regressed. And I think we should go back to look at some of the vision and the values of the ILEA in terms of what was going on then, in terms of creativity and um, the valuing of all cultures. Um, and uh, so I can remember sort of saying, I want to work in Hackney and going for my interview. And they sort of said, are you sure? <laughs> um, because I, I did well in my teacher training. Um, and I think they would have preferred me to go to a higher achieving borough. And I just said, absolutely, this is the borough I want to go into. Um, and so I started off at a school called Millfield, which was in Clapton. Um, it was... Uh, dangerous. It was like mm. properly dangerous. Um, the shops were kind of boarded up. Uh, I can remember sort of um, metal shop fronts and you kind of went in and it was quite dark. There was absolutely nowhere to buy a sandwich. And there was a guy who, quite an entrepreneurial guy, who used to come on, a, on a, like a hover's bike with sandwiches. Um, and he was called the sandwich man and he used to come and take our orders and um, uh, serve sandwiches to teachers in the school. Um, when we left the school, we left in groups so that we could walk to the bus together. Um, and nobody could understand why you'd want to work in a borough like Hackney. But I absolutely loved it. Um, and I felt like the people who were there um, shared my vision. There was a real sense of purpose and ambition. Um, and uh, parents really appreciated the work that teachers were doing. And I think being a woman of colour um, was really important for that, particularly, uh, that particular community. Fascinating, Alison. And you had quite a remarkable rise to school senior leadership, becoming a, a deputy head just after four years of teaching. How did that come about? What were your aspirations for becoming a school leader? Um, leadership was never on my agenda and still isn't. Um, everything that seems to have happened to me feels more like serendipity rather than this is my plan. So I never thought, okay, I'm a teacher, I want to become a, a senior leader, then I want to become a head teacher and all of those sorts of things. It didn't work out like that. Um, in my first year of teaching, um, after about a term, um, the head teacher of the school asked me, what I thought could be better in the school, <laughs> which was a very brave thing. And, I, and um, it was a school that was actually heavy, heavily focused on um, reading, um, uh, especially big books and real books and all of those sorts of things. And um, I absolutely loved the, the way in which we taught reading and writing. We did big writing and made lots of books and really drew on children's experiences. Um, but I said that I thought it was a real shame that um, the arts wasn't more prominent and music was non-existent. And so the head teacher sort of said to me, well, okay, if I give you a budget, what will you do with it to make music better? And I, sort of, I then sort of said, well, I think I'd make it into a community music event and mm -hmm. get the parents to bring music into school and to speak to local secondary schools and all that kind of stuff. And she sort of said, okay, then do it. And suddenly I found myself leading 
music. Music, um, I, I, I can play piano and guitar and all of those sorts of things, but I didn't see myself as a music coordinator, mm. um, but I was able to lead music and to get music to become more established. And I have to say, I organized a music week, which was very popular. Um, it drew in a lot of people. Um, it meant that we then became connected with secondary schools and all that kind of stuff. So that was really great. Um, I was also seen as uh, an NQT who was um, doing things really well. And the ILEA then selected me as one of their teachers um, to invite. I was part of a recruitment exercise and they came to film me in my classroom teaching and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that was pure luck. I was chosen um, by the person who was responsible for NQTs. I didn't put myself forward. I don't think the school put myself me forward. Um, and that meant that people then kind of got to know me a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was a guy called Mike Vance who did a thing about heroes in Hackney. Um, and he put this portfolio of people together. I can remember the things like Miss Dynamite was in there and <laughs> Diane Abbott and all of those people. And somehow or other, I was just in there thinking, my God, what am I doing here? <laughs> Um, and then, uh, I went to go and after three years I moved on, um, because I was very comfortable where I was and I needed a challenge. Um, and so I went to work in a junior school overlooking London fields, um, and, uh, the deputy headship became available and I was encouraged to apply. And so I kind of went for it, um, and then stayed in that role for quite a while uh, because it was a junior school, but it then was amalgamated with the infant school because at that point they were looking at money and it was obviously cheaper to run one big school rather than two small schools. Um, I learned how not to do change management hmm. because there was a complete lack of consultation. People were done too, um, and there was a lot of resistance. Um, and the decision went through. Um, but then, of course, the head of the school and, the, and me as deputy, we needed to learn how to bring the community together so that we could become much more collaborative and trusting of each other. So that was valuable learning. Um, and then after that, uh, there was a vacancy for, uh, there was a new school that was built, being built and was the first school of the millennium. It was the first new school that was being built in the country since 1952. Wow. And the word out. And at that point, Ofsted had been introduced. The national curriculum was being introduced. There were a lot of people in suits. Um, I didn't look like any of those people. I was still very much a woman in my uh, bright pink, uh, I remember, <laughs> all bright pink uh, suede brogues. And I was in my jeans and I was called by my first name. and I absolutely loved the teaching that I was doing and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but the word out was that they wanted a man in a suit. Um, and so the, they advertised three times. They hadn't been able to appoint anybody. It was a DFE appointment, I believe. Um, and the union said to me, why don't you apply um, because we need to prove that it's not a man in the suit. They really are mm. looking for the best person. Um, so I went for the interview, um, being told that I didn't fit the mould, 
um, that um, my hair was kind of wild um, and all of those sorts of things. Um, So I was spruced up, put into a suit. I um, blow-dried my hair. (laughs) Uh, You won't see many pictures of me with uh, uh, blow-dried hair. And it goes straight when it's blow-dried. And um, it was a big interview. Um, I can remember that there were seven candidates. Um, They were all men. They had all done second and third headships. Um, I was definitely patronised by them, almost patted on their head. Mm. Um, And I was seen as being sort of making up numbers. Uh, There were 22 people interviewing me. Um, And there was an awful lot of observation on the first day, and I felt completely out of my depth. Um, but I was there. I didn't go there to get the job. I was there to, um, to uh, you know, the union were testing the, the, the process. Um, and then on the, at the end of the first day, the, we were told that three people would be invited back for the big interview, the panel interview. Um, and I didn't think I'd be invited. And then I got a phone call saying I was invited and I assumed that it was because they didn't want to lose face and they really knew who they wanted. And there was a clear guy, and there was a guy who stood out really clearly. He'd done three headships, significantly sort of in his zero tolerance schools, and he was the complete opposite to me. <laughs> um, and then on the second day, I thought, well, if I'm, you know, I'm clearly just making up numbers, this is pure tokenism. Um, so I went as me. Mm. I dressed smartly. I did wear a dress. I did put on heels, but I didn't wear a suit. Um, I wore my hair in my usual natural style. Um, and I knew that they, it wasn't hard to guess what the questions were going to be. It was, you know, what's the five-year vision um, and what are your values? Um, and so we had an unseen presentation where you sort of mapped out your five, five-year vision. Um, and I talked about my dream school um, and I went in there in an unapologetic way, because remember, I wasn't there to impress the panel. I was just there (laughs) going through the process. Um, And so I probably spoke more freely than I would have done if I thought I was going to get the job. Um, And they rang me uh, later that day and they said, "Um, you got the job. And I I remember sort of saying, shit, you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) And the uh, person who rang me up was a woman called Linda Murgatroyd. And she sort of said, Alison, I'm not in the habit of ringing up people to tell them they've got a job when they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning of me becoming a head teacher. Um, and my school community went absolutely crazy. They were so proud. And there were balloons and there was celebration. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was a big deal because, like I said, it was the first school of the millennium and it was also the first new school in the country since 1952. Um, and it all became too much. And I can remember being in my office because at that point I was a Senko um, and um, I felt so overwhelmed and uh, imposter syndrome really kicked in. And I didn't have the first clue about how I was going to be a headship or where I was good mm. enough. Um, and all of those sorts of things. And I absolutely, I don't cry very often, but I absolutely sobbed and mm. sobbed and sobbed. And um, a woman called Jenny Mules, who I shared the office with, um, happened to come in 
And um, she found me and she asked me what was wrong. And I sort of said, I can't do the job. I'm not meant to do the job. I'm not good enough. They're going to find out I'm a fraud. All of the stuff mm. that, uh, you know, a real place of fear and imposter syndrome and all that kind of stuff. And also the humiliation of being caught out. And she sort of said, they wouldn't have given them the job if you didn't sell them the dream. Um, and you can do it. You know you can do it. You've always been really determined. And she bought me the book, um, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Mm. Um, and um, I scooped myself up and then just got on with it. And that was my journey into headship. And I'm sure it won't uh, come as a surprise to our listeners to hear that your first headship was phenomenally successful. What were the challenges, what were the opportunities of having your first headship being in a completely brand new school? Uh, the biggest challenge was that I didn't have a mentor and no one, there wasn't anyone else that set up a new school. Um, and so I was completely on my own. And that's like incredible loneliness. Um, and... Um, but, and it was it, it was difficult, um, but I never forgot the privilege of being able to make my vision into a reality. Um, when I first set up the school, the building wasn't completed. Um, we were hot desking and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, I was carrying all of my mail in two carrier bags um, because lots of people were applying for the school and all of that kind of stuff. I have to say, they were middle-class people who were willing and could afford to take the risk rather than the black community I most wanted to serve. Um, and uh, after a few days, I lost one of the carrier bags of mail. And it was just like, okay, this is it. I kn you knew you were going to really mess it up. This is going to be really embarrassing. Um, but the mail never, ever turned up. And do you know what? never mattered hmm. um, because the people who really needed to find me contacted me again. And so that was a really good lesson to learn. Um, the hardest thing about setting up a new school is you think it's going to be um, your opportunity to get the best of every, everything, the best staff, the best resources, um, and all of those sorts of things. One, the building didn't work. It was uh, architecturally beautiful rather than fit for purpose as a school. Um, so there were quite a lot of challenges. And the more that I tried to speak up, the more I was told, you don't know anything about architecture. Hmm. Um, and then, and the, so there were many a battle around that because there were things like toilets flooding and rats in the playground and all sorts of things. Um, but the biggest challenge was the fact that you have to do change management every year. Hmm. So you could say to the, uh, the latest cohort in the summer term, you know 60 new families are going to join us and we're going to have to make room for them and we're going to be welcoming. It's going to be really great and you know it and you know it and you know it. And people would say, yeah, yeah, we know it. It's going to be really great. And, of course, September would come and there'd be this glorious honeymoon period uh, where everybody was best friends and we were the greatest community <laughs> and then by October half term a few noses were put out to join because obviously we had to make room for new faces and that was in the playground it was amongst the children the children who thought they were top dog maybe weren't top dog anymore the parents who thought they had the greatest influence had to make way for other parents of influence um, and the teachers who thought they were the established staff had to learn to work collaboratively 
with uh, new teachers. Um, and so that whole managing change meant that there was quite a lot of rese resentment. Um, and so each, uh, I have to say, the uh, sort of second half of the autumn term was uh, a real period of everyone feeling unsettled. So the new families maybe feeling ostracized and unwanted and the new staff feeling um, less valued because they weren't top dog anymore. Um, but then we'd kind of settle down into the spring term and it would be okay. The other thing is that's really hard is when you start off uh, a new school, although you knew every job still needs to be covered. Um, and so that meant that everybody was stretched in a, mm. you know, really stretched to capacity. Um, but um, I, 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 I would do it again. It is an absolute privilege and I adored every moment of it. And there were, there were really, I mean, there were all sorts of odd things. I can remember there was a request for a referendum for uniform subgroup. Um, <laughs> we, um, we started off, I, I'm, I'm not anti-uniform, but I don't think that teaching and learning time should be overtaken by policing uniform. I think that's just mm. a ridiculous situation. Um, and so we had school polo tops, which were optional. And then a new group of parents came in and governors who came in and uniform was important for them. And I think uh, community voice is really important. Um, and so we needed to listen to that. And so the agreement was we'd have uh, a referendum. Um, mm. And of course, everybody sort of said, oh, do you know, it's never going to come in. You know, we've got this laid back uniform style and it's not going to be a problem. And so nobody voted, a bit like Brexit, very <laughs> few people voted. And of course, everybody who thought uniform was important voted. And so uniform was voted in. And that caused a major ruck, mm. the most difficult ruck imaginable. Um, and we made the, uh, we, there was a double page spread about us in The Guardian. <laughs> um, the, the TES took it up. Uh, it was reported on the news mm. um, and all of those sorts of things. And when September came, I kind of thought, oh, God. I wonder if people, because the thing is that uh, there was an agreement, you know, we said we'd go with what the outcome of the referendum was. And so me as head teacher, I needed to put that into, into place. And September was coming and coming. And I remember having a really stressful uh, holiday thinking, are people going to be wearing uniform? Um, and in the September um, first day, everybody was in uniform because nobody wanted to be the one who wasn't in uniform. They wanted to see what would happen and then maybe change their minds on the second day, except for one boy who um, was on the autistic spectrum and he always wore uniform. But on that particular day, his dad decided that he didn't want him to wear uniform and this boy was really, really distressed mm. um, and didn't want to come in and so on. And so his dad, in the end, could see his distress and went to the uniform hut and ended up buying him a uniform so that he wore uniform. So on my first day, the day that I dreaded most, became an easy day because everybody was in uniform mm. and um, things just settled down. So, so I suppose I learned from that that sometimes when you think you've got an overwhelming problem, just trusting the process mm. and letting it unfold 
um, is probably the best way forward because it sorts itself out. And sage advice that clearly served you well because uh, you were uh, recruited by Hackney's local authority to be parachuted in to save a local failing school. Um, mm. Can you tell us about the school and the condition it was in before you arrived? I, I understand that in addition to having issues with student attendance, there, always, there were also issues with staff attendance as well. It was so I'd gone from this very middle class, successful, oversubscribed school where we could ask for anything and the local authority gave us. We were being invited by every kind of organ, organization to be part of it. We were regularly filmed by media and all of that stuff. Uh, to go into a school that was completely broken, it had mm. a falling role, um, there, was no, there was no structure. Um, it was dirty, it was untidy. There were very few people there who had permanent contracts. Um, the local authority had been running the school for three years unsuccessfully. Um, and the reason why I was asked to go in was because they had an upcoming Ofsted. At that point, Hackney was the lowest performing borough in the country. And they'd been told that if they had another failed school, it was going to be taken over. It was run by a trust. Um, it was the first trust in the country. And they were told that if they had another school that failed the Ofsted, then it was going to be taken, it was going to be taken over. And that would have been deeply shaming. And so my job was to try and get the school through the Ofsted. Um, and I had four months. Um, and there's nothing you can do in four months. So the changes I made were purely cosmetic. Hmm. Um, the staff... Uh, were very cynical and resistant and they were very much they were they were, everybody was doing their own thing there were no there were no policies to unify the community children came to school when they wanted to um it was violent parents hated each other and all of those sorts of things um so i kind of went in and i smiled and i was friendly um but i made it very clear that things weren't okay and I'd been asked to be there to make things okay. I was only going to be there for four months. There was, no, there, was, uh, there was no intention at all to stay for longer, but at least let's pull together. Um, on my first day, there was a really horrible situation uh, where I heard screaming. Um, and when I found out where the screaming came from, it was a year one classroom where a child uh, who, uh, he was a neglected child. He had a child with significant learning challenges. He was also a child who was, uh, um, he was a, a vulnerable pupil in every kind of way. He was hiding under a table. Um, and the children who had arrived were kicking him um, because he was smelly and he was dirty and all of those sorts of things. And there were two people standing to one side, just kind of watching this happening. And it was the TA and the teacher. Um, and they, I went in to this chaos. And the first thing I did was I drew the child from under the table. And he was just crying and crying. Mm -hmm. And I drew him into me. Um, because I didn't know what else to do. And it was just pure nurturing. Um, and the two adults said, oh, my God, you don't want to touch that. And I was so disgusted. 
So I told the children to just go and sit on the carpet. Um, and they listened to me because they were so surprised by this adult. And then I said to the adults, one of the adults, are you the teacher? And she said, yes, she was. And I said, is that your, are you agency or are you permanent staff? And she said, agency. And I sort of said, is that your bag over there? And she said, yeah, it's my bag. And I sort of said, I want you to get your bag and I want you to leave right now. And she sort of said, you can't do that. And I sort of said, I can, your agency. You're going to be paid for today because you pitched up. But this is the children's money and you're not going to get another penny of children's money. So I just want you to leave. And she looked at me and she, she silently went to go and get her bag. And then she got to the door and she looked at me and she sort of said, you're never going to get anyone else to teach these animals. And she slammed the door and she left. Oh, and I could see her walk through the building. I, could, I knew she'd walk through the building. And then she, when she left, I could see her leaving the playground and going through the uh, front door. Um, and then I saw that the, the TA um, had actually, she was a long-serving member of staff. Um, and technically, I should probably have asked her to leave as well. But instead, I told her to go to the staff room and tell everyone what I'd done. Hmm. Um, but then it gave me the opportunity to look for the kind of teacher the children deserved. Mm -hmm. um, and it was embarrassing because we had teacher after teacher after teacher who came and went and came and went. And the governors were sort of saying, the parents are complaining. And I said, I don't want any teacher. I want a teacher who wants to teach these children. Um, and um, after about three or four weeks, um, I heard about, I, I was approached and said, there's a teacher who would like to come and do a tryout for you. Um, um, the, the thing is that she comes with a history. She hasn't got on well in other schools and all that kind of stuff. Um, and she came and um, she was uh, monosyllabic in her interview. There was nothing. Um, and I kind of said to her, but there was something about her that was special. And I said to her, I'd like you to teach a lesson for me. Is that okay? And I want you to teach those children. Hmm. And you can imagine by now they'd had teacher after teacher. <laughs> um, and I said, um, they're going to be difficult, but I want you to teach them. Will you teach them for me? And she sort of said, yeah, not a problem. Um, and I sort of said, what would you like to teach? And she sort of said, I'd like to do a literacy lesson. Said, That's bloody brilliant. Yeah, go <laughs> ahead, teach me. And I sort of said, I'll come back in half an hour. And I went back in half an hour and she had the children eating out of her hands because she spoke to them with respect. She was calm. She was quiet. She was accepting of them. Her lesson was dynamic and inclusive and pitched at them. It wasn't something out of a book. She reached them um, and it was just an amazing lesson. And so she stayed on. Um, and she actually became the teacher who supported new teachers into the school um, because she knew what it was like to be on the outside of the system and to be accepted as a teacher. She's actually deeply, deeply introverted. Um, and she's one of those teachers who can close a door and she connects with children. And teachers who connect with children first and foremost, who's the, who make 
reaching the children their priority rather than teaching a perfect, perfunctory textbook lesson. Those are the teachers who get the best results. And she absolutely flew. She turned the class around um, and she went on to become one of the most dynamic, exciting teachers that we ever had. Um, so she was then able to set, set the benchmark uh, for teaching standards in the school and others started to look towards her because they could see that I wasn't interested in textbook lessons, which had become the norm within the DFE and so on. Um, and uh, I also um, had a model of appreciative inquiry, which meant that instead of looking so the at that point, what you did when you did a turnaround school was you went in and looked at everything that was wrong and that became the focus of your attention. And uh, targets were set at where was the national benchmark. And so you just kind of want to hover just below the national benchmark. And I, I sort of said, but no, these are children whose parents are really ambitious for them. These children have great, have great potential. I've got teachers who can teach and all those sorts of things. We want better for the children. Um, so uh, what we did was we looked at what was working well in the school, and that's called a, a, a that's called a appreciative inquiry, where you look at what's working well and you use that as leverage to bring about change. So if you say to people, "You are teaching music extremely well," people sort of say, "Wow, we're doing something great," <laughs> and so you celebrate that as a community, and then you sort of say, "Well, I wonder what we can learn." from how music is teached in the school. Why are the children so engaged in the lessons? Why are the teachers successful? And then you sort of say, I wonder if we can use that as a model for the way in which we teach maths, which isn't so great. And then you're using expertise that's already in existence in the school to bring about change. And so we then started doing that. Of course, the DfE and the a local authority was sort of saying, no, 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 you've got to turn the school around in a year. This isn't good enough and all of those sorts of things. Um, and I sort of said, no, nope, I can change the school in three years because by then I've been persuaded to change. There's a chapter there that I've forgotten. Um, but uh, I've been persuaded to change and um, to, to stay on for longer. And I sort of said, I can change the school in three years. But if I do any changing within a year, then it's not going to be embedded. It's going to be pure gloss. Mm -hmm. And anybody could do the, 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 the pure gloss. And I'm not prepared to do that because it means I'll be lying to the staff, the children and their parents. But in three years' time, I promise it will be embedded. It will be our norm. And the success that we get, will be, you will see it in absolutely everything. And so I kept my promise. Um, and of course, uh, the, the bit I missed out was that after four months, Ofsted came, um, four months of me starting, um, and they said that we were a success a satisfactory school because they could see the beginnings of change. And I sort of said, we're not a satisfactory school. You can't do that. It's lying to the school. Mm. It's lying to the parents. Um, and the Ofsted inspector sort of said, this is the first time I've had this argument. You're asking us to <laughs> downgrade grade you. <laughs> Um, but it's not in the school's best interest to do that. And I lost the argument. It was not a satisfactory school. It was a school that required improvement. Um, and, of course, the worst thing was then that the uh, staff who were there, who, who maybe I didn't have buy-in from, were sort of saying, you see, we're good enough. And I sort of said, no, we're not good enough, and these children deserve better. 
So that was a whole uh, battle that I had to go through. Um, but after three years, um, we did achieve success and we became this turnaround school. Um, and that was the beginning of a whole new chapter in my life. <laughs> and quite a phenomenal turnaround, as I was describing in my uh, my introduction, Alison. You went from being, you took the school from being one of the, uh, you know, one of the lowest performing in the country to one of the absolutely top performing primary schools in the country. Can you take us through a little bit more about how um, that journey came about? What were some of the other changes you made to shift those final bits that really needed transforming? The most important thing was to, um, I talked uh, earlier about the need for having teachers who knew how to connect with children, who weren't frightened of the children, who recognised that behaviour was communication and distress, it wasn't disruption. Um, so looking at that, um, it was also getting, um, I started, I, I trusted my teachers. Uh, so if they made promises to me, they kept those promises rather than me telling them what the targets were. They told me what their targets were and they were way, way more ambitious than I ever was. Um, it was also involving the parents completely. So really going with the model of it takes a whole village to raise a child and saying to the parents, we can't do this by ourselves. You need to bring your children to school on time and regularly. Um, one of the things we did was uh, we stopped lining up in the playground because, one, um, children will want to run and do all of those sorts of things and then people will get upset because the children were noisy going into class and all of that kind of stuff. But we sort of said, no, the children know how to walk to class. Let's trust them to walk to class. but let's." just um, start um, the day with uh, reading um, and saying to the parents, reading is one of the most important things that your child will ever get at the school. So if you care, you will get to your child to school on time so that they can do their reading. Um, and so we had this wonderful culture of starting the day where the whole school read, to, read together. And that brought about incredible calm. Uh, we also um, started um, getting the children to visualize, to, to take pride in who they were. So you start off by creating a culture of belonging so the children felt that they were part of the school. There's, we wanted them to be who they were. We didn't want them to take on the cultural capital of white middle-class children because they're not white middle-class children. They were black migrant children or they were either uh, second or third generation, but we all had the sense of uh, being migrants over time uh, or they were white working-class children. So trying to get them to be something that they weren't meant that we were... I kind of think that's disrespectful um, and dis, uh, it, doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't value what people bring. And so we wanted to value what the children were bringing. Um, but we also wanted the children to see their potential. Um, so we started to get the children to say, I, I got the children to say, to think about where do you want to be? Where do you want to be when you are grown up? And the children would say, actually, I want to be, I want to play for Arsenal. I'm really great at football, it's just like, okay, so if you want to play for Arsenal, um, where do you need to be when you're eight? Where do you need to be when you're 11? Uh, where do you need to be when you're 16, when you're 18? What does your behaviour need to look like? Because honestly, if you want to play for Arsenal, they're not going to be interested in a kid 
who can't self-regulate uh, because you need to have the discipline. Otherwise, you're going to get red cards and you're going to be sent off the pitch. So how do you manage your behavior? What does taking care of your body look like? Because if that's your most valuable asset, the how, you know, what does sleep look like? What do you put into your body so that you can be strong and fit and healthy and all of those sorts of things? Um, where should you be when you're 11? What will your fitness look like? What will your behavior look like? Uh, will you, where will you be, be playing football and how will you, will you be playing football? Um, and the children used to write this down. Um, and then uh, I would say to them, okay, so you're now 14 and you're playing football for Arsenal youth. Um, and you're in a friendly match against Leighton and you're a Hackney guy, so you know that you've got this Hackney-Leighton tension. Um, <laughs> so you're playing a football match against Leighton and there's an unfortunate tackle. It's nobody's fault. And uh, you break your leg. Are you going to be able to play for pro football? And they sort of say, well, I don't know. No, probably not. And I said, well, you might. You never know. But you might want to think about your plan B. And then the children would sort of say, well, actually, I want to be a doctor. It's just like, okay, so if you want to be a doctor, where do you need to be when you're eight? What will your key stage two SATs results need to look like? What will your key stage, uh, your key stage three SATs results look like? What will your GCSEs look like? Which universities do you want to go to to do medicine? And we started talking to the children about other universities rather than just the black and the working class universities. We started taking them to um, different uh, places and getting them open their ideas to the potential. We took them, we wanted them to become Londoners so they knew about Londoners. And what we were doing was building self-esteem. We wanted the children to take responsibility for themselves so that when they were doing all of the assessments and all of that kind of stuff that was uh, a necessary part of school life, they weren't doing it to please the teacher. They weren't chasing the red, uh, they weren't chasing the blue ticks. They were interested in the red ticks. And the red ticks weren't a threat. They weren't a deterrent. Hmm. It was their opportunity for learning. That's what we wanted the children to learn. And so they took ownership for themselves and they took ownership for their behavior. And because they were taking ownership for themselves, we became this incredibly chilled, calm school. Um, and the one thing that happened was that we started having visitor after visitor and they would say, how do you get the children to behave like <laughs> this? And it was because the children have understood the importance of self-regulation. And because they took self-regulation seriously, when they were in lessons, they were fit learning because if children aren't emotionally fit for learning they can't learn and of course we also did things like healthy eating we started becoming a, a vegetarian only school not because of the health reasons but because it's inclusive it meant everybody eat mm. everything um and we started placing value on um not just saying that english maths and science made you clever, but we started looking at cleverness in a much more inclusive way. So we started looking at what your gold is. And your gold is your God-given gift, the thing that you are really great at. And we started giving those children every opportunity 
to reach greater depth at their God-given gift. Because when you start being celebrated for what you're good at, do you know what you do? You start taking risks in your learning. Hmm. So instead of seeing maths as, I can't do maths, you start saying, well, I'm brilliant at music. I know I'm brilliant at music. The whole school community knows I'm brilliant at music because we were into celebration. Um, but it also means that I'm strong enough to take risks at things that I'm not so good at. Um, and uh, for us to create these opportunities for the children to really do global learning, and that's what we were doing. We were doing global learning. We weren't doing the national curriculum. Um, they, uh, because we had this very, very complex timetable giving children, the, the, each child, the best opportunities to, be, to reach their true potential, it meant that we couldn't teach English and maths five days a week. Mm -hmm. We could only do it four days a week. Um, but what I said to the children is, look, you know, we still have to do well in our sats mm -hmm. as a school. We need you, to, you know, we need to be successful. So when you go in and do your English and maths, you're going to have to be extra, you're going to have to be extra, extra focused. And so what we found was that when we stopped doing maths and English five days a week, um, and uh, we also did a blended curriculum. We didn't do English maths. We did a mixture of English and Singapore maths, looking at the best of both. Um, it worked for us, and uh, we found ourselves uh, becoming, we started getting 100% in our maths results, um, and uh, something like 70 and 80% of our children reaching greater depth because they were willing to take risks. <laughs> that was all it was. Um, and so we became the number one school in Hackney and um, we were in the national top 100 and our pupil progress put us, um, I think, I can't remember, uh, we were one of the highest achieving schools. I think our pupil progress was like uh, 106 point whatever. Wow. Um, and um, that then meant that the children could see it was worth their while because lots of people then wanted to engage with us. And the more people who wanted to engage with us, uh, the better it was for all of them. And so that's how it was. I also have to say the other thing that was really important was I trusted my teachers, hmm. absolutely trusted them. Um, teachers know English and maths and science are important. So why don't we just trust them to teach it? phenomenal story of a transformation of a school, Alison. And in a borough like Hackney, which has in its own way gone through its own transformation in terms of all sorts of uh, elements in Hackney, but particularly its education system. Looking in the round, uh, what do you think about these changes to education in Hackney? Do you think that they've generally been positive? What more do you think needs to be done? Um, the sad thing in Hackney was we started to get um, saviorism coming into our schools. So we, we had old school Hackney mm. where people were there because they wanted to work with that community. And then uh, we ended up with a model of saviorism, um, which started taking the children away from their cultural capital and started getting mm. them to buy into um, becoming something that they weren't. Um, and I love the ambition. I can see that it's really, really great to say that we've got X number of Hackney kids who go to Oxbridge. 
um, one who talked to some of those kids, they didn't, they were on the outside, they didn't belong, they didn't have the happiest time. So I'm not going to say that that's a great success story because if, if your self-esteem is completely demolished because you leave acne and then go to somewhere where you're very much mm. um, um, on the outside, I, that's not great. Um, but I, I do love the ambition. Um, and I wonder whether or not we could return to uh, a middle ground where we celebrate the excitement of the diversity and the richness of acne um, and also continue to be as ambitious as everyone is, whether you sort of have this sort of saviorist approach or whether you've got sort of old school hackney approach, there is a middle ground. Um, and I'd like to see an amalgamation of the two. Alison, there's two questions we always ask guests on the Life Pedagogic. Firstly, thinking back on your education career, is there anything you've really changed your mind about? And if so, what changed it? So when I was working through um, doing the school turnaround, um, I had high expectations of everybody, um, including myself. Um, and it reached a point where um, I can remember going to a coaching session with a woman called Viv Brandt, who is phenomenal. Um, and she, in that coaching session, she said to me, why aren't you celebrating? And I sort of said, I am celebrating, because at that point we'd had, uh, we were number one in Hackney. We were, God, there was so much going <laughs> on. It was exciting. We just had this incredible Ofsted. Um, and uh, I sort of said, we are celebrating. I've done my thank you letters to parents. Um, I've done parties for the kids. I thank the staff. Of course we're celebrating. And she sort of said, yeah, yeah, I've heard all about that. It's really wonderful you did that. Why aren't you celebrating? And I sort of said, I am. I'm really proud. <laughs> and she sort of said, I don't see the celebration. I don't feel the celebration. And what had happened was that I'd gone into perfunctory. Um, I had burnout. I'd stopped feeling. Mm. Um, I'd stopped. Uh, I'd started compromising. I'd started giving my family time away to work. I wasn't sleeping properly. I wasn't eating properly. I'd put on weight. Um, I was really just a complete and utter mess um my dad also died um and uh when i he he was a workaholic um and he um retired when he was 64 and his idea was my brother's a pilot so he was going to travel with him on the long haul trips and they were going to have some dad and father time so that he could see the world and learn how to relax and all that kind of stuff. And as soon as he retired, um, he developed pancreatic cancer and he was dead within mm. three weeks. Um, and I can remember going to see him and, uh, in hospital and he said, do you see me lying here? And I sort of said, yeah, Dad, I see you lying there. Um, and he said, do you know why I'm lying here? And I said, you're sick. And he said, I know I'm sick. Do you know why I'm lying here? And I, I said, uh, tell me. And he said, too much work, mm. not enough play. Um, and that's a sobering thing, really sobering. 
um, because after that his voice, uh, he lost his voice and he died uh, two days later. So that was playing heavily on my mind and then of Viv, and then of course Viv sort of saying, you're really not well and you need to go and find out. You need to do, um, you need to get some help. Um, and so I uh, started to uh, look at myself and I realized how unwell I was. On the outside, I was doing absolutely everything I had to. I was smiling. I looked like myself. I was pitching up for work every day. Um, nothing, was, um, nothing wasn't being done. Um, but I'd given my body and my spirit and my soul away to the job. Um, and so I had to learn to become well. Otherwise, I could have ended up in the same situation my dad was in. And I and um, I realised I needed to get well. I spoke to the governors, and they sort of said, "Let's give you some money." And I sort of said, "No, no. You know, if you're going to give me money to get better, then that's really great. It means it rescues me. But actually, it's not just me who's been working at that sort of um, high, um, you know, that sort of driven rate. Hmm. Uh, I'd set the pace for the whole school, so everybody's working in that kind of way. So if we're going to do well-being." And we're talking 2013 year. Mm-hmm. If we're going to do well, we, well, well-being, then let's do well-being for the whole school community. And so I started to understand well-being in its truest sense. Um, and I, um, I read about it, but I also started taking better care of myself. Um, and I started taking care of my community. Um, and so we then became... So this was before trend, um, and uh, I can remember that I can remember going to the governess and sort of saying, "We need a well-being budget," um, and they sort of said, um, "We need to do the Daily Mail test because um, <laughs> they, you know, they're going to see it as, you know, a flush account or whatever." Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we did set a well-being account, and so it became a strategic part of school development, um, and that made me change. Uh, the way in which I led in a very, very profound and important way. And Alison Creel, thinking about the English education system, what two things would you most like to change about it? Uh, the first important thing is it needs to be depoliticised. Um, we've we have um, Secretary of State after Secretary of State, uh, where they bring in their passion. It's not in the interest of our children. It's very much based on how they will maybe taught. We're delivering a curriculum that was the way in which we deliver our teaching um, goes back to 1901. The way in which we manage behavior goes back to 1950. It's 2023. We shouldn't be teaching for last century. We need to be teaching uh, for the adults who are going to be leading this country in 2030, 2040, and beyond. So we need to be forward thinking, not backward thinking. And so as long as it goes on being politicized as it is, it's always just going to be a football that gets kicked about rather than having this long-term strategic view about what kind of country we want Britain to be and what kind of citizens we want our children to be. And so... Um, if we can please just take politics out of education and focus on that, I think that we will have a much more co- coordinated, collaborative approach than we have at the moment. 
the second thing that I would really like is for us to be more invested in uh, raising our social uh, economy. Um, we, uh, at the moment, uh, we are working very much in terms, we, we, we look very much in terms of, yes, we do want a stable economy. And I'm not against uh, people wanting to be financially okay. Um, but we are in a culture which is um, very consumerist. We want new everything. We want the best of everything. As soon as you want the best of everything, it means you've got second best or you want to be top dog. And if you've got the best school, then it means we're quite happy to have other schools which are second and third, which isn't okay. Um, so I think if we've got an approach uh, where uh, we are um, working towards um, having, uh, uh, where we invest in our social economy, uh, where we work towards um, uh, basically sort of, uh, a sort of Ubuntu uh, thing where, you know, I am because you are. Hmm. Um, and uh, we start looking at our, uh, um, basically our, looking at common, uh, common humanity, you know, what have we got in common? What do we want for each other? How can we enable each, all of us to be self-sustaining, happy in, individuals? And the way we do that is through having a model of fierce compassion, which means that we are very conscious in what we're doing in our schools rather than following the rules for how we teach schools. We lead them consciously. And if you are going to do compassion, it's not a feeling, it's an action. Um, it's where we look at what common humanity looks like and uh, we look at kindness. At the moment, uh, we have a model of pity, um, which is actually an enemy of kindness, because mm. as soon as you pity someone, um, then you othering them. You know, I feel so sorry for um, those children. Let me go in and see what I can do to make their lives better. You've immediately othered those children. You've immediately sort of said they're not the same as me. So come back to um, kindness and common humanity so that you, you're not Doing things out of pity, it's a bit like when you walk past a homeless person in the street and you put money in their, um, in their cup because that means you can walk past them with a... You, you're doing that for yourself so that you can walk past with moral conscience. But that person's going to go on sitting on the street. So let, you know, if you're going to be truly compassionate, then what you want to do is to say... What can I consciously do to eradicate homelessness and the need for people on the street rather than throwing a few pennies here and there? So I would like us to become much more invested in raising our um, social economy um, and less focus on um, all the, the consumerism that we have going on, which is very much a me, me, me culture, uh, the latest trainers, the latest phone and all of that kind of stuff, um, which is what we see in our schools, which is what we see, you know, the way in which marketing and advertising, all of those sorts of things, or they all uphold that model, um, but it's actually making us more and more fragmented, but we can be better than that. So those are my two wishes, yeah. <laughs> An inspiring vision, Alison Creel.
It's been a pleasure and a privilege having you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogy. Thank you so much. And it's been uh, very, really hard questions. So uh, thank you for making me think. (laughs) We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.